Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. All right, welcome back to Behind the Knife's Oral Board Review Series. My name is Patrick Georgioff. I'm joined today by Craig Brown. Uh, Craig is a resident at the University of Michigan. Craig, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great. We're going to talk about two topics today. The first uh, will be spleen, and the second will be some of the key points for biliary disease. Uh, before I get started, I want something came to me recently. I want to I want to share. This will be guaranteed to help at least one person listening to this on the oral exam. And that is, if an oral examiner ever tells you about a central line, okay, if they ever mention the fact that the patient has a central line, especially an IJ or a subclavian, and especially if it's, it's in a critical care case, do not forget to rule out a pneumothorax and rule out that pneumothorax early. There's usually a reason they're telling you uh, about why that line is there. So don't forget it. All right. With that said, let's move on to spleen. So the score, uh, diseases and conditions. Uh, for spleen, there's only advanced. There's no core diseases and conditions for spleen. And so the advanced material are hematologic diseases of the spleen and splenic abscesses, cysts, and neoplasms. Now, trauma, uh, we'll talk about a trauma spleen briefly uh, today, uh, but that is uh, a core topic in the trauma section. In regards to core operations and procedures for the spleen, that's, that's splenectomy. So as I mentioned, in regards to the oral exam, you're really looking at whether uh, a, a traumatic injury or a hematologic issue, and the vast majority of those are related to ITP. Uh, so, Craig, let's get started with the trauma scenario. So, if you have a patient who is hemodynamically unstable uh, and you have concern for a splenic injury, what's the treatment? Yeah, uh, unequivocally open splenectomy here. Don't get fancy and try to do a lap here. Open. Yep, open splenectomy. Okay, so hemodynamically stable with blush on CT scan. Yeah, this is... Um... IR can be the, the option here uh, as opposed to open splenectomy. You could still potentially consider it, but the standard of care now is uh, IR. Sure. And then how about a hemodynamically stable patient without blush on CT scan? Yeah, this one is where it gets a little bit more complicated. So if there's no blush, you can really observe the vast majority of those patients. A couple important uh, contraindications to talk about. One in particular is if the patients have concomitant TBI, uh, those patients have worse rates of mortality because of the uh, possibility of having hypotension, uh, which we know worsens TBI mortality. So uh, relative contraindications to observation in hemodynamically stable patients uh, is TBI or really bad injuries, so grade 4 and 5 injuries, which put them at high risk for non-op failure um, in particular. So those are kind of the big the relative contraindications. Yeah, Craig, and I would say um, for the oral exam, if you get a grade 4 or 5, probably just do an open splenectomy, take it out. Um, uh, but if you don't, what are the other key features in regards to observation? Yeah, so the things that they're going to ask you for in particular uh, to turn out to be really institutionally dependent in a lot of cases, but really you got to describe some sort of observation protocol. So how often, um, uh, or sorry, how long are you going to observe them? How often are you going to do abdominal exams? How often are you going to do labs? Whether or not you want to repeat your imaging. In general, I'd say pick whatever your institution does or whatever you feel comfortable with and just be able to explain it in detail. The reality is there's not a whole lot of data for that. Um, and then the other part to remember here is really you got to have a low threshold to go to the OR if your observation fails and have specific criteria about when you're going to make that decision. So 
if the patient's developing peritonitis, have some value for a transfusion threshold. They get, you know, four units of blood in the first four hours or something. Or if they have hemodynamic instability, those are all things that you got to specifically identify as failure for non-op management, and you're going to take them to the operating room. Um, Patrick, do you want to talk quick, how do you actually do an open splenectomy for trauma? Yeah, so this is, again, a core procedure. Uh, so you do an upper midline uh, incision. You want to pack uh, aggressively behind the spleen um, and to farther medialize the spleen, you're going to take down the gastrosplenic, the colosplenic, the splenorenal, and the splenophrenic ligaments. Uh, that, again, that's going to help medialize the spleen into your field. Uh, you also want to make sure you ligate the short gastrics and take the time to do so uh, to avoid future bleeding. And at that point, you're going to come across the splenic artery and vein uh, in whatever fashion you choose, whether it's suture ligation uh, or with a vascular staple load. And you want to take care not to injure the tail of the pancreas. Great. Um, it, you know, things are a little bit different on the hematologic side. We'll talk about that quick. Um, as you mentioned earlier, you know, really this comes down to mostly management of immune thrombocytopenic purpura. It turns out that about 70% of splenectomies are for ITP. Uh, the first line treatment uh, of note is, is not splenectomy. It is actually steroids and IVIG. Um, it turns out that the relapse rate is pretty high in these patients, and so uh, medically refractory patients will often uh, present, uh, you know, for consideration of splenectomy here. Really what it comes down to in terms of criteria for splenectomy is a patient and, um, and surgeon-specific decision that really has to take into account kind of the risks and benefits here. The important point to know is that surgery or uh, splenectomy for ITP is not 100% curative, contrary to what one a lot of patients and also even some surgeons think. So it turns out that the, the recurrence rate for ITP after complete splenectomy is actually about 30% in some series. So just make sure that you know that. Um, interestingly, for ITP, those patients don't develop splenomegaly uh, in contrast to some things we'll talk about in a minute. And then um, it's also important to point out some pre-op things here. So you want to take that? Jordan? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, a lot of these patients are going to be in high dose steroids. So you need to consider stress dose, uh, uh, steroid dosing. Uh, and certainly want to ensure you have good IV access, cross and match your blood products in advance, ensure you have adequate supply of platelets as well. Um, yeah, yeah, do you want to quick talk about lap splenectomy? I know we don't have to spend a whole lot of time yeah, on that. But yeah, so it's not a core procedure, but I think it's worth just mentioning uh, in case you want to describe laparoscopically. Put a patient in a modified right lateral decubus position. Uh, you can uh, describe how you would move the bed or angle the patient to help uh, with exposure. Uh, you're going to medialize the spleen just like we did for open by taking down uh, the uh, perisplenic uh, ligaments, gastrosplenic, colosplenic, splenorenal, splenophrenic with an energy device. Uh, again, ligate those short va va uh, gastric vessels. And we're going to ligate the splenic artery vein just like we did open, taking care not to injury the tail, the, uh, injure the tail of the pancreas. And for a laparoscopic procedure, we're going to use vascular load staples to do so. A very important point for hematologic conditions, you want to take your time to search for any accessory spleens. Uh, we want to miss those. And then now uh, you're going to remove the uh, spleen uh, through, uh, through one of these smaller incisions. You may have to morselate, put it in a bag and morselate to do so. So, Craig, what are some of the other hematologic conditions that might require a splenectomy? Again, these are things that almost certainly won't show up on the oral boards. Let's just mention them, though. Yeah, real quick, uh, the ones that, you know, are pretty low likelihood, but it's spherocytosis, if you've all heard that. Um, here, the important point is that at the time of the operation, you want to also perform a cholecystectomy because these patients have really high rates of gallstones. Autoimmune hemolytic anemia. And then hypersplenism from hematologic cancers like lymphoma. So all those things could be indications for uh, splenectomy. Right. How about, um, yeah, go ahead. 
Splenic. I was going to ask you about splenic artery aneurysms, actually, because that's another. Yeah, sure. May come pop up. Yeah, another common indication for splenectomy here, um, or at least treatment. So there's um, a couple indications for splenectomy, or sorry, sorry, for treatment of splenic artery aneurysms. Uh, in particular, we want to do a splenectomy in anybody who's symptomatic from their aneurysm. We want to do, uh, or we want to treat these aneurysms for anybody who's asymptomatic but has an aneurysm that's greater than two centimeters. That's the guideline cutoff for treatment. And then, interestingly, we got to treat patients who are asymptomatic women of childbearing age who are good candidates because those patients are actually at really high risk of rupture. Uh, the rupture rate for uh, Pregnant women actually is 50%. So women of childbearing age who are asymptomatic should get their aneurysms treated regardless of size. And then um, another common uh, indication for treatment is uh, a splenic abscess. You want to talk about that, Patrick? Yeah. So most commonly, splenic abscesses occur from a hematonot uh, hematogenous source. Uh, less likely, uh, it can occur from a direct uh, extension from an intra-abdominal infection. And for these, uh, you want to just go ahead and perform the splenectomy. Uh, percutaneous drainage is not always effective and can be problematic. Uh, so I would just go ahead and describe a splenectomy to treat these patients. Yeah, and I always struggle. When do we vaccinate these patients? Yeah, you're right. So so we want to do the encapsulated organisms, so strep pneumo, haemophilus influenza, and meningococcus. Uh, ideally, you give these 14 days prior to an elective case or 14 days after an emergent splenectomy, as these are uh, as two weeks before or after is the time for the best immunologic response, as determined by a couple studies. Uh, but in the trauma scenario, or uh, likely in the trauma scenario, that that patient's going to be lost to follow up, you want to ensure they get their, their vaccinations before the discharge. Yeah. All right. I think that wraps up spleen. Let's move on to biliary. So there's a, a bunch of stuff for biliary. We're going to just hit on the core. Some of the key topics, I guess, or the more controversial things that will likely come up on the exam. So the core conditions uh, or diseases and conditions for biliary include benign biliary obstruction, bile duct injury, iatrogenic bile duct injury, biliary neoplasms, cholecystitis, and cholecystitis cysts. Advanced diseases and conditions include functional biliary disorders and primary sclerosing cholangitis. The core operations and procedures are cholecystectomy with or without cholangiography, cholecystostomy, cholecystitis, enteric anastomosis, and common bile duct exploration and cholecystoscopy. Advanced procedures are bile duct cancer operations, uh, acute repair of bile duct injury, bile duct and neoplasm uh, uh, resections, gallbladder cancer operations, and how to ultrasound the biliary tree. So with that in mind, let's start with one of the more common things that may come up. Uh, Craig, let's talk about the critical view of safety. Yeah, this is, you know, this is essentially uh, the classic case. I'm sure everybody taking the boards has seen this a million times. The point that I think is really worth talking about here is defining the critical view of safety. Uh, the authority here is really the Society for American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons or SAGES. And uh, what's really interesting is, is that uh, several studies have shown that even among a group of people who say that they know what the critical view is, it turns out about only one out of four actually can identify all three criteria. I'm going to go through those three criteria here. We'll try to be quick. The first one is that the hepatocystic triangle has to be cleared of all fat and fibrous tissue. That's probably the big one that, you know, gets missed often. So a lot of times people see pictures and there's like two structures and they clear off the plate, but they forget that this has to be cleared of fat and fibrous tissue. Um, the hepatocystic triangle is defined as the triangle formed by the cystic duct, the common hepatic duct, and then the inferior edge of the liver. Um, the 
common bobbic and the common hepatic ducts don't have to be exposed, though. You just have to know where they're at. The lower one-third of the gallbladder uh, has to be separated from the liver to expose the cystic plate. That's the second criteria. So lower one-third of the gallbladder separated from the liver. The cystic plate is oftentimes called uh, the liver bed uh, of the gallbladder, and it's actually just, you know, where the um, oftentimes called the gallbladder fossa. The third criteria is that two and only two structures should be seen entering the gallbladder. I think that one we're fairly uh, familiar with. It's pretty intuitive, but the other two sometimes can get missed. Sure. Um, so that's, yeah, yeah, and then, so again, I think, Craig, you mentioned, so two and only two structures entering the gallbladder. That's easy. Clear the lower one-third off the cystic plate. That's easy. And then this hepatocystic triangle anatomy is just kind of a little bit funky. And so it might be worth looking up a, a picture of that if you're going to rattle off the definition of the critical view. Uh, important to know that. So let's talk about uh, intraoperative phalangiogram. Uh, there's a couple different ways to do this. Uh, whatever you're more comfortable with, you can describe. So two most common are probably using a Kumar clamp or just a five French phalangiogram catheter. And typically, you um, you draw up some, some contrast, maybe 25 mLs of contrast, dilute it in, in half with normal saline. And when you perform your IOC, you have to be able to describe what a complete IOC is, which includes visualization of the intra and extrahepatic biliary tree. Now, Craig, what if we do an IOC and we have some stones stuck at the uh, distal common bile duct? What can we do to help free those up? Yeah, a couple easy things to try first. So oftentimes people will try glucagon, which uh, has an effect of relaxing the sphincter of OD. Um, you can also just try to flush with saline. That's important to remember there's, there's a small risk of pancreatitis uh, with that maneuver. And then uh, the other kind of slightly more advanced maneuvers, but still that don't require big changes to your operative procedure, would be to try a, fo a Fogarty catheter through the cystic duct or even a fluoroscopic basket retrieval to try to pull stones out through the cystic duct. Yeah, less likely for that ladder. So, but on the boards, you're, you're not, none of that's going to work, right? Universally, it will not work. And you're going to need to be able to describe how to do a common bile duct exploration. Uh, for this, you're going to want to describe how, you know, converting to open, I, I think would be safest. And probably early on would be involving or at least consulting uh, an HPB surgeon to join you in the operating room or referring to an HPB surgeon. Uh, they will tell you again at that point, there's, there's no HPB surgeon available and you'll have to be able to describe how to do it uh, on your own. And so, uh, you know, not too complicated, but you want to be able to talk about it. So let's talk about it right now. You want to perform a vertical incision on the anterior aspect of the common bile duct. Now, why anterior? That's because the vascular supply of the common bile duct runs uh, uh, laterally. Uh, and you want to make that incision distal to the cystic duct or, or between the cystic duct and the pancreas, so closer to the pancreas. And you do this to preserve the ability to perform a cholidoka jejunostomy um, if all this fails or you, need to, you, you end up needing to do that. And once you're, you're open and you have access to the common bile duct, you want to flush it out uh, copiously. Uh, you can use a Fogarty catheter to try to uh, remove stones. You can use a basket uh, or any really any other instrument that you have available to you to try to break up or pull these stones out or push through into the duo. You can also use a colidocoscope uh, to visualize the stones, and these may, may be most helpful to push the stones through distally. Now, when it comes to closure, uh, you can close, you could try to uh, describe if you have a very small incision closing primarily, uh, that uh, likely they'll tell you that doesn't work some, for some reason. Uh, it's too narrowed. Uh, you're worried about being stenotic. You could describe closing it over a stent. Okay, that stent can later be removed via ERCP. Uh, they may say, you know, uh, there's a big duodenal. Maybe you got into that situation because they couldn't do an ERCP for some reason. There's a big papilla or something blocking access uh, 
to the uh, uh, common bottleneck itself. So ERCP is not an option. Well, if that's the case, then you need to move on to something like a T-tube, uh, which um, you know I haven't used more than one or two times. So it might be worth looking up how you place a T-tube and then how you take it out too. That's uh, usually uh, some of a complicated process. You take it out over time. So the timing of when you take it out is important as well. Great. Yeah. So that kind of parlays into a uh, discussion about bile duct injuries. Um, you know, a lot of those uh, maneuvers can be shared. I think uh, the important point here is um, really the most common cause of bile duct injury is the atrogenic. So following lap coli, that, that rate really hasn't changed uh, over the years. It's like something like 0.3% even in some series. So um, the way that we classify bile duct injuries is really according to the bismuth Strasburg criteria. We're not going to go into detail about that today, but it might be worth taking a peek at. Uh, Google Images has some interesting uh, diagrams that are really kind of drive it home. Um, the presentation is interesting. So these patients Occasionally, we'll have mildly elevated bilirubin. Um, that's usually through uh, reabsorption of bilirubin through the peritoneal lining. Uh, and then the other important point here is if their LFTs are elevated, that suggests that they have an obstruction or even a transection of the duct. And so that involves, you know, a little bit more um, aggressive workup here. Um, speaking of workup, do you want to talk quick about imaging? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, like you said, you start with your labs, and, and maybe that will give you a hint of what's going on. But there's a lot of different ways to image. Uh, ultrasound's a great way to start. Uh, you can certainly perform a CT scan or an MRCP. And if you're worried about diagnosing a leak, uh, HIDA-scan might be uh, uh, your best bet as well. So all those options or all those things. So what about treatment then? Uh, treatment, it's a little complex, but it depends on what type of injury it is, where the injury is at. But there are a few core tenets of treatment, and that includes uh, draining. So you want to make sure that the patient's getting drained. Uh, this can be a percutaneous drain uh, into the fossa, perhaps a little drain, or you might want to consider an internal drain via PTC or ERCP. This could be both therapeutic and potentially diagnostic, or excuse me, could be, is, could be diagnostic and therapeutic. We'll talk about that in a minute. You also want to ensure that you treat the patient for any infections. Uh, they may show up, uh, they probably show up on the boards as being a little sick, maybe cholangitic. And so you want to ensure that you're treating with broad spectrum antibiotics. And I think the easiest type of injury would be a cystic duct stump leak. It's a type A uh, injury or maybe a partial hepatic or common bile duct transection, uh, a small transection. These things could be uh, bridged with a stent. And so uh, going with ERCP and stenting across the injury may be your best bet here, especially for an initial uh, foray into treatment. Uh, in general, if the uh, injury is recognized shortly after surgery, probably within two to three days after surgery, you definitely want to consider early surgical repair. If these injuries are recognized a week or more after surgery, uh, you really want to wait six to eight weeks as the operative field is going to be uh, much more favorable at that time. And so what is the surgical repair? You do uh, be able to describe a ruin why hepatical jejunostomy typically performed end aside with interrupted suture like oral PDF. Uh, you Describe hepatico J because primary repair of bile ducts, especially in this circumstance and especially in delayed fashion, almost universally fail. Uh, so, again, uh, messing around with repairing it uh, is probably not the best idea. Uh, Craig, what about awesome. cysts? Let's, let's move on. To yeah, that. We'll, we'll talk about cloidocal cysts for a minute. These things, I can't tell you how many pimp questions I got on cloidocal cysts and have, I don't think I've ever gotten a single one right. So we're going to talk about it real quick here. Um, 
presentation for cholecystitis is super variable, but occasionally uh, they'll present as uh, abdominal pain. Sometimes they'll cause jaundice via obstruction, uh, and occasionally it'll be even be a palpable mass. Oftentimes that's in kids, obviously. There is an increased risk of malignancy and an increased risk of cholangitis, so uh, that has implications for why we treat these. Um, diagnosis is really made uh, on the ultrasound imaging, usually initially. So right up about ultrasound will identify some uh, dilation of some structure in the biliary system. CT can allow us to define that a little bit better, but really MRCP or ERCP and EUS can uh, provide sort of definitive uh, understanding of the anatomy. There's a bunch of different types of colloidal cysts. In fact, there's five separate ones that are uh, often described. We'll talk about those quickly. So um, the the classification of colloidal cysts is really determined based on where the dilation is. So uh, a type 1 is the most common. It's something like 80 to 90% of colloidal cysts are type 1, and it involves either saccular or fusiform dilation of a portion or the entire common bowel duct, but importantly has normal intrahepatic ducts. Type 2s is really just an isolated diverticulum off the common bile duct. Type 3, or is oftentimes called a colloidal seal, that's uh, dilation off the duodenal portion of the common bile duct where the pancreatic duct meets. Type 4 is oftentimes split into two, so 4A is multiple dilations of the intra and extrahepatic biliary tree, whereas type uh, 4B is multiple dilations of just the extrahepatic bile duct. So again, type 4, multiple dilations. If it was just a single dilation, that would be a type 1. And then type 5 is oftentimes called Caroli's disease. That's really cystic dilation of the, in, in the um, intrahepatic uh, biliary ducts. Um, so, you know, that, that it sounds kind of complicated. It is kind of complicated. I think at the end of the day, you just got to take a peek at the pictures for these things and try to internalize it. But uh, it's a tough thing to remember. I'll never know. I'll remember. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, all right, treatment. So how do you treat these things? You're just going to resect it. So you can resect it do so. Uh, ideally, get frozen sections in the OR to evaluate the, the margins and ensure there's no malignant changes that you weren't able to visualize grossly. And when you resect a uh, bioblack, you're also oftentimes talking about performing a uh, re, uh, reconstruction with a ruin y hepaticojejunostomy. Uh, again, endocide, interrupted suture. Uh, Craig, what about cholangiocarcinoma? Just a quick bit on this. This is something that, uh, very unlikely to show up on the board. Yeah, we'll quick talk about it. So the reality is, is that cholangiocarcinoma, few of those patients are actually surgical candidates, right? They metastasize early. It's pretty aggressive. Um, the uh, initial management really is to complete staging. So the NCCN guidelines show uh, a couple different options. So really there's multiphasic CT of the chest, abdomen, pelvis. Uh, or alternatively, and this is becoming more common, CT of the chest with an MRI of the abdomen and pelvis because uh, the anatomy is slightly better for liver stuff that way. Really, in this setting, the thing to remember is that PET scans are reserved for patients who have uh, kind of an equivocal finding and can help identify um, occult metastases. So in the patients who you're thinking about resecting, might be worth uh, giving the PET a shot. But really, surgical treatment is that we just resect these if it's resectable, um, for, you know, because that's really the only shot these patients have. Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, gallbladder cancer. Let's talk about that. So, the gallbladder cancer is listed as a. Um, gosh, is that an advanced topic? Yeah, so that's an advanced operation. But I, you know, this is something I would see. It's a good question for oral exam. Uh, so, this is something I think we should, we'll, we'll talk about in a little more detail. And it, just like laryngocarcinoma, gallbladder cancer is often diagnosed uh, as advanced stage at diagnosis. Um, and 
you know, a lot of times you may see something concerning on ultrasound initially. So, uh, you know, a patient shows up to the ED, you do get your right upper quadrant ultrasound, but there's some funny business on the on the imaging. Uh, and and those uh, the main thing you may see is a gallbladder polyp. So a gallbladder polyp is greater than or equal to one centimeter should uh, alert you or concern you uh, for a malignancy. Additional findings on ultrasound that may suggest malignancy include calcification of the gallbladder wall, a mass of any kind protruding into the lumen, a loss of interface between the gallbladder and the liver itself, direct liver infiltration would be concerning, and then a thickened gallbladder wall that is not explained by cholecystitis. Uh, but again, I think the most common thing that would come up would be a gallbladder polyp that's greater than one centimeter in size. So if you have that, you want to get additional cross-sectional imaging, whether that be CT or MRCP, uh, to confirm and uh, better appreciate what these findings on ultrasound are. Yeah, the, the other thing, too, that comes up here a lot, I think it's probably right. fair game for the boards, is, is uh, porcelain gallbladder. So I think the key point there, and this has changed a little bit recently, is that there used to be recommendations to resect every single porcelain gallbladder. Uh, it turns out that most people are sort of changing that recommendation now. But uh, the thing to remember is that there is, in fact, an increased risk of gallbladder cancer with uh, porcelain gallbladder. But... It's not certain, like a lot of people think it is. So, uh, you know, that one uh, is interesting for the boards. Um, in terms of if you're actually concerned for gallbladder cancer, so we just talked about a whole slew of, uh, you know, risk factors with or concerning findings on ultrasound and imaging. If you think it's gallbladder cancer, really finish the staging. So get a CT of the chest. If it's resectable, the treatment is cholecystectomy. And then the interesting point here is that the recommendations are for a two centimeter margin of the liver bed and a portal lymphadenectomy. We often talk about completing a 4B5, uh, uh, segments 4B and 5 resection, but really it comes down to just obtaining these two centimeter margins. If you have to take a little bit more than 4B and 5 or a little bit less, that's okay. But the uh, 4B and 5 is just like the words we use to describe, but really it's just a non-anatomic non margin there. Um, Incidentally discovered gallbladder cancer, uh, say you find it on pathology specimen and they call you and they're like, hey, there's uh, you know gallbladder cancer in there that we didn't know about. The indications for re-excision uh, are really if there's greater than T1B or uh, disease, which would be invasion of the muscular layer of the wall. And so those patients should go back and get a... Um, two centimeter margin of the liver bed and a portal lymphadenectomy. Again, remember to finish your staging too. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's good. And, and, you know, if it looks like gallbladder cancer during a routine coli uh, and you get this on the boards uh, and you got to think about what to do, it, it, it's totally safe to say we're going to complete a colostectomy close and then refer uh, to an HPV surgeon afterwards, you know, stage and refer to an HPV surgeon. You could also say you know, I, would, I would consult an HPV surgeon intraoperatively, have them take a look and, um, you know, if you're sending off frozen sections or, you know, it looks blatantly like cancer, you could potentially talk about getting that two centimeter margin in your portal lymphadenectomy during that case. But definitely safe to say, complete your gallbladder removal, close and, and get uh, move on from there for um, complete staging and, and potential return to the operating room at a later date. All right. So that that completes our kind of key biliary topics. Uh, Craig, thank you very much again for joining me today. Uh, for all listeners. Dominate the day. Great topics. Until next time, dominate the day.